0: All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Elections Weekly, our weekly election and politics news show. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Cunningham. And with us, as usual, we have Joe Szymanski, who is the head of our elections team and the head of our interviews team as well, and Dylan Wade, who is a contributor to Elections Daily and uh, also a podcaster and has done a lot of other stuff. So we're happy to have, uh, have them here this week as we had a pretty substantial news cycle. Specifically today, we've had several big, big things coming out and things that will come out. So we'll go ahead and start with the big news of the day, which is that uh, uh, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, who was first appointed to the Supreme Court under uh, President Bill Clinton, uh, has announced his retirement from the Supreme Court at the end of the term. Uh, What this means is that Joe Biden will have a chance to appoint a Supreme Court justice before the midterms. This is fairly typical of a president. Most presidents Uh, Except for, I believe, George Bush, uh, George W. Bush and Jimmy Carter have had first term uh, appointments. President, uh, former President Trump had three of them. Uh, George uh, H.W. Bush had a appointment before, I believe. Um, So this is continuing in the line of that. Uh, President Biden has announced that he will be appointing announcing a pick, I believe, at the end of February or by the end of February. And said the nominee will be a uh, his choice will be a black woman, which is what he promised on the campaign trail uh, during the election. Uh, there are a couple of a couple of key candidates who are thought of. Neither was her name Kamala Harris. That's not actually a thing that's going to happen. Uh, there are several other qualified uh, people who are on his list, uh, and you know, given what is going on, we don't expect this to be a bipartisan confirmation, but we do expect. Uh, this confirmation to happen, Democrats do control the Senate, and you can you can confirm with 50 votes plus the Vice President, um, or even fewer if there's Republicans that join on. So I'll go ahead and throw it to Joe here to kind of give us the the rundown on what what happened, uh, how this came out over the weekend, or how it came out earlier in the week, and then we'll go into some of the potential uh, candidates for this position. <sighs>
1: Yeah, so uh, this was kind of the retirement that uh, if one was going to happen in President Biden's first two uh, before the midterms, uh, that it would be this one. Uh, prior, as, as Eric mentioned, has been in since the Clinton administration, he's in his 80s now. I believe he is 83 years old, so he is certainly getting up there in years, uh, and obviously with how narrow the Senate is, and as the environment uh, continues to look very poor for Democrats going into 2022... Uh, clearly uh, I think understanding the situation that was going through Justice Breyer's head he wanted to be replaced by someone who was as the same ideological thought as him Uh, he will now get that wish Uh, and this is going to be significantly less you know I think uh, massive as the last couple of Supreme Court justice nominations Uh, really it would be this is more akin to Kavanaugh replacing Kennedy. You know, if the, uh, uh, you know, accusations hadn't come out against uh, Justice Kavanaugh at the time, that probably would have been a relatively similar co- um, uh, confirmation to what we're seeing now, a partisan confirmation, but not one that necessarily changes the partisan balance of the court. Uh, you know, uh, the Gorsuch commu- uh, confirmation was, of course, seen as controversial because of how, Uh, Republicans held that seat open until the post-2016 election. And of course, the Amy Coney Barrett nomination was seen as controversial due to the fact that it changed the balance of the court from a 5-4 conservative majority uh, uh, ideologically to a 6-3 conservative majority ideologically. Uh, We won't see any change from this. Breyer is of the liberal wing. He will be replaced by someone uh, of the liberal wing. He will not be replaced by... uh, someone who is a conservative of course by this uh presidency and by this senate uh two big names to watch uh you know um justice brown jackson uh out of um out, who is on the one of the circuit courts has been mentioned as the big one uh obviously Biden has said she wanted to he has wanted to nominate uh, a black woman uh Miss Brown Jackson is one of is one of kind of the two major candidates. She's fifty one years old. She's been seen as a potential Supreme Court justice for Democrats for a long time, uh, and at her age of fifty one, a lot of people, seeing the age of Sonia Sotomayor and Elena uh, Kagan, uh, kind of see uh, this is kind of Brown Jackson's last chance to really be seen as a. You know, leg- you know, as a legitimate Supreme Court nomination, as we've seen these justices get younger and younger when they are nominated uh, at her age, is kind of seen as her last real uh, shot to be nominated. And then also, though, uh, and I, I believe, uh, let me make sure I am getting this uh, name right here before I go into it here, uh, but Leandra Krueger is uh, kind of the, the second big name here uh, that we are you know, looking at right here, uh, she is currently on the uh, Associate Justice on the California Supreme Court. She is significantly younger than uh, Brown-Jackson. Uh, she's only 45, which actually in this case probably uh, makes her less likely to be the nominee if Biden uh, specifically wants Brown-Jackson. And there could be signs that Breyer himself won Brown-Jackson because Brown-Jackson Uh, clerked for him early in her career. So, uh, but Kruger has also been a name mentioned, uh, potentially working in both against her and in her favor is her age. She is six years younger. She's 45. You know, she'd be someone who would be on the Supreme Court for a relatively well-known long time uh, and has been shown to be someone who can get crossover for support potentially uh, from Republicans. She has a slightly more moderate voting record than Brown Jackson has during her time as a justice. But most people believe that Brown Jackson is a likely favorite. Uh, she was confirmed to the circuit to a circuit court by a 53-44 uh, vote earlier, with a couple of Republicans absent, and Lindsey Graham, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins all voting to confirm her. So, you know, uh, I would say the favorite right now is definitely Brown Jackson. Uh, there's no doubt about that, but uh, Kruger is one that if they decide to go, they want to go younger, uh, then that would be one who would, that would be probably the nominee, uh, that Joe Biden would choose.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go
2: I, like, oh, go ahead. No, go no, ahead.
0: No, no, you go first. And then I'll,
2: I was just basically going to agree with all of that. Um, so yeah, go ahead.
0: Yep. So basically, uh, the other thing we're looking at here is how this shifts the liberal wing of the court. So, uh, as, as has been known, the liberal wing is now down to three members, uh, following the death of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her replacement uh, with the more conservative uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, before uh, her her death, uh, Ginsburg was one of the two more liberal members of the court, along with Sonia Sotomayor, who was by far the most liberal member of the court. Um the The more moderate wing is Elena Kagan, uh, who was expected to be more liberal than she was. Sotomayor was expected to be more moderate than she was, so it kind of balanced out there t- in the end. And then uh, Stephen Breyer, who is a, um, so basically this could go one of two ways. Leandra Kruger would probably be more in line with Breyer's philosophy. Uh, Breyer is considered to be more moderate because his philosophy is more moderate. He has a judicial philosophy called purposivism. Um, which is kind of a counterweight to textualism. So if textualists focus strictly on the text of the Constitution and the meaning of what that text is, uh, Breyer focuses more on the purpose of the text. He doesn't reject or he didn't reject the, the, the text as written, but he he you know tended to look more into the purpose of what it was, tended to look into legislative history, uh, that sort of stuff, and would result in different outcomes. Um, could also result in interpretations of the Constitution changing over time. In relation to societal norms, an example he would give would be the death penalty, uh, which obviously he he considered the death penalty be unconstitutional as cruel and unusual punishment. Um, that's an example of, of his purpose, of his philosophy sort of adjusting as the times go on to societal norms. Another thing he focused on was balancing tests. Um, but yeah, he's he's generally considered to be one of the more moderate members, probably a little bit more liberal than Kagan but certainly one of the higher up on that wing. So the question would be whether this new Biden appointee will be more progressive like Sotomayor, or more moderate like Kagan, someone who's known to, uh, who to go onto Republican or Republican appointed justice opinions on occasion, who has good relations with the Republican members of the, of the of the court, who has a great respect for textualism, even if she doesn't believe in it, and so is able to interface more effectively with Republican justices than someone like Sotomayor who tends to be often is the only dissenting vote if the two liberal, other liberal justices, Kagan like and uh, Souter, or not um, Breyer, were to vote with the Republicans. So uh, where are you guys thinking this sort of goes? you think the Biden appointee will shift the court a little bit to the left in terms of the liberal wing, or will uh, this Biden appointee be more close in line with the uh, filling in Breyer's spot and trying to uh, reach opinions a little bit more towards the middle?
2: Uh, I definitely think that, That it's more likely to go towards the liberal wing um or at least i think that'll be biden's intention uh whether it actually goes in that direction as you've said kagan was expected to be more liberal er, and sotomayor was expected to be more moderate so you never really know but i think biden's intent is absolutely to shift the court a little bit to the left
1: yeah i i can't really disagree here uh but i think to to kind of go off of Dylan's point. we really don't know until they're on the court how they will uh, act and how they will judge and how they will create decisions. Uh, we won't know until they're, they' they are on the, they are on the bench. So you know uh, with obviously with K- uh, Kanaji Brown Jackson and Leandra Krueger, you know they have the, they have prior records, but we have seen just as with prior records, Change when they get from a circuit court or a state supreme court to you know the actual United States Supreme Court. We have seen that change happen uh, for you know uh, these justices, and it could happen for Ketanji Brown Jackson, or it could happen for Leandra Kruger, or uh, it would be exactly what we expected to be. And uh, I would say, especially if it's Justice Brown Jackson. Uh, it will be a move that shifts the liberal ring uh, towards the left, uh, maybe not in a massive way, but in a slight way uh, compared to what it was when it would be Sotomayor, Breyer, and Kagan.
0: Mm-hmm. And for those who are uh, watching, I'm going to pull up a graphic here, which kind of gives an idea of of where justices are uh, ideologically, um, so this, I believe goes up to Amy Coney Barrett's first term. So give me just a second to open it up. Um, but it'll give you an idea of where Breyer is historically speaking on the court and then where, uh, where, you know, a potential, um, Biden appointee could go in as well as where the other liberal members of the, of the court are. So this is a ideological, uh, leanings of Supreme court justices going back to 1935. Uh, eight is the most conservative negative eight is the most liberal, uh, you'll notice here there's a big outlier, which is uh, William O. Douglas, who was – by the end of his t- tenure got to literally a negative eight, um, probably had to expand the scale out from like a five or a six to be able to get to that point. Um, uh, William O. Douglas, for those who are not, is one of the more uh, famous liberal justices. One of his cases specifically – one of his dissents specifically questioned whether or not trees have standing. Uh, he, he, he posited that trees could potentially have standing in a lawsuit. So that, that that's how you get to negative eight on the ideological scale, but you'll notice most of the liberal justices have actually leaned more in the negative four range. So about halfway between liberal and conservative, then the conservatives also lean more up there. So the current justices, you got Thomas is the most conservative then Alito Gorsuch and Barrett are fairly similar. Kavanaugh's fairly similar to Roberts. And then right on the liberal wing, right around negative one, you got Kagan, you have Breyer, you had Ginsburg and you have Sotomayor. So, Basically, what we're expecting is that whoever this nominee is will go probably from the Breyer position of being about negative one, negative two, probably more towards Sotomayor, at least closer to it than than what uh, than what uh, Breyer is. Could even be closer to Ginsburg, who even, you know, Ginsburg wasn't extraordinarily liberal as far as court uh, courts go. I mean, I mean, you, you're in comparison to trees have standing guy, that's a little bit of a of a challenge to to match up to that so that's kind of what we're looking at in terms of where this thing can go obviously we need to know the nominee first and we need to kind of hear from their testimony watch their opinions but it is generally expected that brown jackson or kruger will be the uh will be probably among those two chosen given biden has limited it to black women only that actually produces the substantial range of nominees much more than any of the trump nominees there were i believe uh any of the Trump nominations had several candidates who could have been chosen with very different judicial philosophies. You have your Kavanaugh, you have your Gorsuch's, but you also had people like Tom Hardiman, who was generally considered someone who would be more moderate. Um, so that's just kind of what we're looking at with the Supreme Court. We'll keep you updated, of course, as this process goes out, as a nominee is selected and as uh, the Senate debates and ultimately likely in all likelihood confirms uh, Joe Biden's first Supreme Court nominee. Uh, so next up on our list is uh, Georgia. So uh, Georgia is one of the more interesting states we've been followed. Uh, we, we wrote an article, or we had an article from uh, Kras Grenitz and from myself uh, last year, or sorry, not last year, either last year or the year before that, uh, 2020, 2019, um, that focused on Georgia quite heavily, on its status as a pivotal bellwether state, and specifically as one where Democrats could be trending in the right direction long term. Ultimately, we didn't call Georgia correctly in our presidential or Senate ratings, but we did predict that trend long-term. So given that Georgia has now flipped to Democratic at the presidential level, has two Democratic senators, um, it was generally considered that Stacey Abrams, the presumptive Democratic nominee for governor, would have a very easy time, or at least a relatively easy time, uh, Running for and winning a gubernatorial race in 2022, even with a potential Republican year. However, polling has put a little bit of a a damper on that for Democrats. There have been two polls that have come out in the last week. The most recent from the Atlanta Journal Constitution, which showed several major things. The first thing it showed was that Biden is deeply underwater in Georgia. I believe it had him at a 36 percent approval rating.
2: 34,
0: I think. Yeah, 34 percent. And if that seems low, yes, it is. it, It is very low. Also keep in mind that Republicans did just flip Virginia, so you can't really dismiss that out of hand. Uh, Biden is – as far as presidents go, he's pretty historically unpopular in comparison to everyone but Trump right now. Um, He's really not doing very well, so you can't dismiss that number out of hand. Um, Yeah, but this poll showed that, for one, in the Senate race, Herschel Walker, the presumptive Republican nominee, held a very narrow lead over uh, incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock, um, which is generally considered somewhat surprising. Um, but it's not not out of hand with any of the other polls. Most of them have shown a fairly close race. For governor, it showed that, one, Brian Kemp has a fairly large lead over uh, David Perdue, the former senator who's challenging him for governor, in the primary. This is something I have predicted myself, that Kemp would would win a primary challenge fairly easily, um, in part because of his strong support in the Atlanta Republican Party. The Atlanta Republican Party in the Atlanta area uh, will really, really like Brian Kemp. The more conservative wing there. It's still there and they still make up a lot of voters in the primary. So, counting Brian Kemp as the potential nominee, he's in this Atlanta Journal Constitution poll, he leads by six points over Stacey Abrams, 47 to 41. Uh, this is not what people were expecting to see from a poll. There's another poll earlier this week that also showed uh, Kemp ahead. I believe it showed him by one or two points ahead of Abrams. So, it's the second poll showing, um, showing a lead over Abrams, who is notable for. Running in 2018, doing very, very well, much better than Democrats had thought previously could be the case, then questioning the election legitimacy, uh, then becoming a national Democratic figure in election law, voter registration, a bunch of other things, basically a very high-profile Democrat. um, One that has a very high sway in the Democratic Party at this point and is generally seen as a future of the Georgia Democratic Party. So my question to all, to to, uh, Dylan and to Joe, uh, what do you take from this poll? Uh, How do you see Georgia going uh, at this point in 2022 coming up? And what are some warning signs you're kind of seeing if you look at some of these other states, Virginia being probably a big one, a a very similar state with a large urban area uh, that Republicans were able to flip against most odds?
2: Yeah, so I, obviously not a good poll for uh Georgia Democrats. Not as bad as I think a lot of people are making it out to be. Mm-hmm. Um Biden's approval rating is not good. 34% is really really bad. Um Warnock though is outrunning Biden's approval rating by about 10 points. 10 uh 10 to 12 points depending on which candidate he's up against. That's actually a really good number. Um I don't expect that Biden's approval rating will remain that low. Um, Trump at his most unpopular, I think, was at about this margin um, and rebounded. He got back up to low 40s, I believe. Uh, Mm -hmm. And if Biden gets back into the low 40s and Warnock continues to outrun Biden by that margin, I actually don't think that poll is as bad for Warnock as... It is for Abrams. I think that number is really bad for Stacey Abrams. Um, sorry, go ahead, Joe.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to basically uh, agree with you here. Uh, I think this is a much worse poll for Stacey Abrams than it is for Raphael Warnock. Uh, we do see the power of incumbency here, I think. Uh, when Abrams is matched up with David Perdue, uh, I believe she gains a point or two.
0: Mm-hmm. She uh, then, pulls
2: at I think uh, even with Warnock against
1: uh Walker.
0: Yeah, it, it's basically a one or two point lead for uh, for Purdue in that case. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And then and then you see it of course for Warnock where he he again is only down by about 2 3 points in this poll. Probably there a bit of an incumbent boost for mm-hmm. uh Raphael Warnock. But I do want to point to one data point from this poll that I do think, you know, this is an we should we should uh, stress as an early poll we, we're less than a year out now, I think. Let's not forget that. We are less than a year out uh, from this race, which I think is probably crazy to a lot of us. But we're less than a year out. But the campaign also hasn't begun yet. So yeah, I, I would still call this a
2: very early poll,
1: yeah, even though we're that, less than a that, year out. Certainly still definitely an early poll. But, but you know, uh, I it was which is my second point. This is still an early poll. Let's make that clear. Numbers will change. Things will change. We're going to see hundreds of millions of dollars thrown into Georgia again, as it was in 2020, as it was basically in, for 2021 for those runoffs. And we're going to see millions upon millions of dollars thrown into Georgia again in 2022. But I do want to point to one key uh, little data point that I saw from the AJC poll that I do think should be worrying for Stacey Abrams, and that in this poll, uh, she does about seven points worth w- worse with male voters than Warnock does. Uh, that is something I am interested in seeing if that will continue throughout this whole cycle. Uh, if that continues, uh, I think it's not impossible that uh, that is that is a large enough gap uh, with male voters, that that is something that could lead to a Warnock win and a Kemp win. Uh, that is that is not something that if that gap, if we see that gap continue stay in that polling throughout the next eight months, that's not something we can just kind of you know push away. There, that's a big enough gap, seven points in male voters, that you would say, oh, you know, that's that's enough of a difference that it could see to that Brian Kemp win and to that uh, Raphael Warnock win. And I, again, I, I'm going to repeat uh, Dylan's point. This is a, I'm not even going to say just worse poll. I'm going to say significantly worse poll for Stacey Abrams than it is for Raphael Warnock. I mean, Stacey Abrams is basically, it, it, in no cert- in, in maybe unfair terms by me, but in, in honest terms, I think, running basically a shadow campaign for governor since he lost In 2018, it's been expected since that moment that she would run again against uh, Brian Kemp, and that she would be the Democrats' nominee for that race. You know, let's make that very clear. She's she's basically been running for governor since that moment. So uh, it's very hard for me to say that this is a good poll for Abrams for someone who has been in the national message, who has been going basically across Georgia for the last four years. To be, you know, down seven points of the incumbent governor in in uh, one of the first two polls uh, to start off with, and to be not in the range of error of both polls in what is becoming a growingly partisan and narrow state, you know, uh, that's 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 problematic. I'd ha- I would say that is, you know, uh, that's a problematic poll. We're seeing in the cro- we're seeing some things in cross tabs that. If I was someone who worked on the Abrams campaign, I would look at and I would look and compare the crosstabs to our race for the war, not to the war in our campaign. And I would probably be, you know, honestly, a little bit concerned, you yeah. know, what those crosstabs are saying and what we're looking at here while understanding that we have, you know, 10 months, nine months to go until uh, the November and- election. But and also the, and but as <laughs> potentially a runoff. We'll see. Of course, Georgia still has that law in the books. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it is something that is potentially challenging to the Abrams campaign, is that it's not, you know, the red blaring whites everywhere at this point. It should never be at this early in the campaign, but something you say, hey, you know, I look at this poll, I look at the numbers, I look at the cross tabs, and I kind of look in it and say, hey you know, very early, but are there some things that we should look at here and say we should probably be uh, slightly concerned with some of these early numbers?
2: Uh, But Mm -hmm. by that same, uh, on that same point, if I'm the Warnock campaign, I look at this poll and I'm mildly concerned, but I look at the crosstabs and I think, okay, if the national environment improves at all, we should be, we should be fine steady as it goes for the moment um, at this point I think Warnock's problem isn't his campaign or him it's the national environment when your president's down nearly 30 points underwater there's not much you can do uh, mm-hmm. to outrun that um, outrunning it by 10 is honestly a spectacular result for him um, I would if I were on his campaign, I'd just say, steady as it goes, pour all your money in. But you're you're in as good of a shape as I think you probably could be.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good points. And I do have one more question to kind of lead off from this, is that there was an additional poll from Quinnipiac, which uh, showed similar results to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll. But there was one uh, polling element that I found interesting, and I know several other people found interesting. Uh, as we all know, uh, after the 2020 presidential election, former President Trump uh paraded around the state of georgia with ridiculous claims of voting fraud and illegal voting uh it was and these claims are generally considered to be a key reason as to why republicans lost the senate race republican turnout specifically in rural georgia was substantially down um which could possibly have been tied to voters thinking the election was illegitimate uh this Quinnipiac poll shows something different the exact opposite thing this time uh uh, according to the poll, 70% of Republicans say they are confident that all eligible citizens in Georgia will have a fair opportunity to vote in the 2020, uh, 2022 elections. The same poll says only 13% of Democrats are confident. Uh, that's the exact opposite problem of what Republicans were facing going into 2020, uh, the 2021 uh, runoffs, except this time now it's Democrats who are apparently convinced that the election could be illegitimate. This is likely due to not only Stacey Abrams' claims of of illegitimate elections, but also due to Republicans passing the controversial voting law last year, um, which has had a lot of claims made about it, many of them legitimate, but many of them not legitimate, all of which, though, have have provided an atmosphere where uh, a lot of people are convinced their vote will not count. I think Dylan wants to kind of weigh in on this here.
2: Yeah, so I actually don't think that question that Quinnipiac asked accurately gauges the issue. Because the Republican um, voters weren't concerned that their votes wouldn't count. It's that votes that did votes that shouldn't have counted would count. So I'm sure they do think all eligible voters will get a chance, but that's not really what their gripe was. Uh, That's not what Trump was parading around. Um, He was parading around false votes, um, not the idea that Republican voters weren't able to vote. Um, Democratic voters have long had in many states concerns that eligible voters wouldn't be allowed to vote due to restrictive voting laws. Um, Something that I do think is a fair concern in many uh, regards, but I don't... That question also doesn't ask if they think the election will be legitimate or not. I think I think that number would be different Um, Mm -hmm. concerns over the process and concerns over the legitimacy, I think, are, I would hope at least are two very different topics um, Mm -hmm. that discerning discerning voters can separate.
0: Yeah, and I think we had, you know, we had polls like this showing of Republican voters before the 2021 election And I could be recalling this, but I think it was exactly what you were saying, which is that Republican voters were not only uh, not confident in security, but they weren't confident that the vote would count and that the election would be legitimate. That is a different question. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's one that other pollsters will ask, because uh, I think it is an important question to ask. Um, I have been long of the frame of mind personally, and I know others are, that, you uh, That we, it's very unfortunate what has happened in the last several election cycles where people have been claiming that elections have been illegitimate. If this sort of thing becomes a long-term problem and voters become convinced that their vote will not count, that's not a very good thing. It's an even worse thing if they're convinced that the vote won't count as long as the other side is in charge. That's the more... Pressing is there's some I'm hoping these uh, other pollsters will will ask that question and and try and gauge it here. I think the the most specific one was that black voters in particular were very unconfident that all votes would be all citizens would have an opportunity to vote in this poll, and, and which they have. Them. Yeah, and and they have
2: historical reason to believe yep. that. So I, mm-hmm. I think that's that's a legitimate fear among black voters. I, I and. I do also, I agree with you. I want to see a question asked about whether voters feel the election will be secure, because mm-hmm. I think I think that's a much more relevant question to whether voters think the election will be legitimate or not.
0: Mm-hmm. And specifically whether it will be more or less secure as a result of the new law. That would probably be a really, really good question if any pollsters are listening and they're going to frame their polls based on what some people in the podcast uh, say. That'd be a really good question to put in there. Sure. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, I think we've kind of gone over Georgia. But real quick, we'll go over another important state news, which did happen before we get into New York, which will probably take up most of the rest of our show. Um, Alabama, their congressional map was struck down by a federal court, a three-judge panel um, that ruled that that you would probably need a second uh, Black Opportunity District in the state. Um, I think most of us at Elections Daily on the legal side are unconvinced. That this ruling will stick um i don't want to speak for everyone else here but there are specifically we wrote an article about the voting rights act and how it applies federally uh adam adam trencher and Kras granitz wrote an article there and one of the key things is that for a district to be a VRA protected district minority voters must comprise 50 plus percent plus one of the re- of the voters in the district um strictly speaking minority coalition districts are not a thing so It would be interesting to see how this goes forward because, strictly speaking, this doesn't entirely line up with Supreme Court precedent. But at the same time, it would be pretty unusual for the Supreme Court to strike down a ruling like this. They don't tend to do this too often. So we're going to follow the litigation as it advances. There's a very good likelihood this this ruling may be stayed. Uh, This could be in court for some time. Obviously, the Supreme Court is pretty busy. Uh, they have lots of cases going up. They have a vacancy that will be uh, coming up at the end of the term when uh, Justice Breyer retires and is replaced. Um, so a lot of stuff going on. This may not be taken for a while, which means this could be stayed or it could have a temporary map for the election. We really don't know. But if but the the um, the potential risk of this for Republicans would be losing a district in Alabama, uh, which would benefit Democrats by giving them an additional district. Um, the alternative, of course, is that this goes to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decides that the Voting Rights Act uh, does not protect minority districts at all, and the Republicans draw a 7 no map. Uh, that's also a potential possibility here as well that has been uh, potentially feared, for example, in the Arizona Voting Rights Act lawsuit. There are concerns that the entire Voting Rights Act could be gutted as opposed to just the portion the Supreme Court ruled on. So we'll be we following this litigation, uh, people more knowledgeable about the law than any of us here. We'll be looking at this and giving you updates as it advances. Um, But yeah, keep an eye on Elections Daily and uh, Adam Trencher and Kras Grinitz when they, uh, if they do write about it, we'll keep you updated on that. So uh, I believe our last topic of the night will be the New York uh, redistricting. Uh, New York is the last big Democratic state to be putting in their maps. Uh, Earlier in the year, um, their independent commission, or earlier last year I should say, their redistricting commission failed to reach an agreement on a congressional map. Republicans and Democrats had conflicting proposals, and as a result, legis- uh, redistricting has been kicked back to the legislature. I'm going to go ahead and throw it to Joe here to explain kind of the process a little bit and also um, some of, uh, clear up some of the misconceptions about the, uh, the New York redistricting process that some people have uh, and the, particularly the role of the governor in, in this whole process. I'll go ahead and throw it to Joe to kind of explain some of this. Yeah,
1: well, we've kind of reached the, the borderline point here, the New York uh, state registering process. Uh, as Eric said, the appointed commission has officially kicked the process to the legislature, and we've heard that we expect MAPS to come this weekend, potentially probably which that could lead to anything from tomorrow night to Sunday evening, uh, and it's not out of a possibility if it's a potentially map that would either uh, upset Democratic activists or it upset Republican activists, depending on its severity, uh, that these folks release it on Sunday night when a massive football game is being played. Is Of course, Sunday is the day that uh, both the AFC and NFC championship games will be played in the National Football mm-hmm. League. So if a map is potential to be criticized by either side, whether it is uh, very aggressive, or in some cases for some Democrats, not aggressive enough, uh, that would probably mean we'd expect the map to be announced on Sunday night, uh, to try and force it under the news cycle. Uh, but otherwise right now, and as Eric wanted me to mention out the role of Governor Kathy Hochul, uh, you know, the, the role is not as maybe effective as some, uh, governors, uh, to my knowledge, Hochul cannot um, uh, uh, propose her own map. She cannot uh, act on any suggestions. Uh, she is basically there to sign or veto the map. Uh, she cannot, you know, draw her own map or create any districts. So the idea of a of a holchelmander is not necessarily true, but the idea of a democratic state legislature gerrymander is certainly true. Uh, that is certainly the case. Uh, really, what I've been hearing about and some of the worries that I've heard. Is that Democrats will not go hard enough on the Long Island portion of uh of uh, New York state. Uh they might try and go for a Nevada type thing where they try and make a scenario where they win all four potentially in a wave scenario, all four seats. But uh, as was seen by the Suffolk and Nassau County local election in twenty twenty-one, there were some pretty significant swings towards Republicans in those elections and uh some uh, mapping Democrats, some data Democrats have talked to are concerned that if they don't go hard enough there, uh, that that could potentially lead to a not a, a, not a full map wide dummy mander, but a potential Long Island dummy mander.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: in which instead of only getting, you know, Republicans end up with three seats, potentially in that part of New York, instead of only one or zero. Uh, and then upstate, there is some concern that they do not necessarily draw upstate or the Hudson Valley correctly. We And there are some concerns that maybe Biden 2020 numbers are not maybe the most accurate here uh, upstate. Uh, obviously, it is not very hard to draw a bunch of Democratic districts upstates that are more than 10 points to Joe Biden, uh, but it is very hard to do that with numbers from Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, we don't know necessarily how upstate is going to react. It's an area that could be, you know, very Republican or it could be an area that could be, you know kind of swingy, purplish 50-50 to a Democrat that it likes. Uh, they like Joe Biden, so it voted in a more purplish way than it did in 2016. But there are some concerns that some of those seats uh, could become more competitive if it is an upstate environment that is uh, more upset at Democrats. And that's kind of the main thing here, how much they want to pack and how much do they want to risk. You know, some of the swings in these parts, you know, Long Island and upstate where – There haven't really necessarily been trends, but we've necessarily seen swings kind of go uh, one way or another in these areas. And it's going to be very fascinating to see how they draw these maps. You know, a Biden single digits in the upstate that would eliminate a Republican district upstate isn't necessarily a district that would be solid uh, for 2022 at all in any ways. And I would say the same thing for any Long Island districts.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's worth noting, um, specifically, I'll throw it to Dylan here in a second, but. The several uh, things is that one in Long Island, Republicans did take control of both Nassau and Suffolk County's uh, legislatures, uh, county legislatures in the recent local elections. Uh, that has some Democrats spooked. Um, Democrat, I actually believe Republicans won all of the offices in Suffolk County or Nassau County, which is uh, fairly unprecedented in recent years. And in an upstate, upstate, if it were a state, upstate New York would be one of the most competitive uh, swing states in the country. Uh, this is an area that voted for Donald Trump narrowly and then voted for Joe Biden narrowly. You can draw a pretty effective Democratic gerrymander, but a lot of these counties upstate not only voted for Donald Trump in 2016, they voted for Republicans down ballot. Uh, uh, Louise, Louise Slaughter almost lost her Rochester, Rochester-based district in 2014, a fairly uncontroversial Democratic incumbent who even Republicans tended to like in the House. Uh, there are other areas. John Katko, uh, his area around Albany, has started shifting a bit more Republican lately. He probably wouldn't appreciate it. And then you have – I'm not sorry, John Katko, Um, What's his name? Um, Paul Tonka. Uh, his uh, district has started shifting more Republican in recent years relative to the rest of upstate. Uh, obviously, John Katko won a Republic, a Democratic district that voted for Joe Biden by double digits. He, he won this district several, uh, several times before retiring. So for Democrats, it's more than just um, – draw a bunch of Biden plus 10 seats and call it a day. You actually got to focus on the, what the incumbents want and on what is electable. We do expect a democratic gerrymander, but the 23 to three, uh, is probably not something we're expecting to see to put it lightly.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't expect Democrats to go incredibly aggressive. Um, that's not really, even Illinois wasn't as aggressive as it could have been. Um, mm-hmm. Nevada is Nevada. Um, I'm New Jersey. They kind of went with a status quo map um, where they just short up the districts, uh, short up the incumbents that are there. Um, so I don't expect New York to be crazy. I don't expect twenty three to three. Um, but who knows? I don't. Democrats getting spooked by the Nassau and Suffolk elections is unsurprising but it was one cycle it's a bad year for democrats and it was a local election i Mm -hmm. don't know how much you should be taking from that um obviously something to keep in mind but if you're going to base your entire redistricting plan around that that seems dubious
0: Mm -hmm. definitely um, there's, there's a lot of factors they're considering here to be sure in drawing this map. And when they do announce the final lines, we'll bring you coverage. We'll go over the map in that week's episode of Elections Weekly, among other things. Um, but we'll we'll be sure to keep you updated on this as it progresses. Um, oops, uh, I was going to say one, more. one other thing about New York. But uh, it's, it, this is definitely the last big Democratic state to keep an eye on. There are Republican states that have yet to have their maps in. I believe uh, uh, Missouri is still debating uh, their congressional map. Kansas is still awaiting a democratic veto potentially of their congressional map. Yeah. Florida is a work in progress. That's the last big Republican state. So we're not entirely out of the woods here on redistricting. We'll we'll keep you updated as these process progresses and as things continue to advance throughout the redistricting uh, cycle, this only happens once every few years. So, you know, as it happens, we'll keep you updated. Um, We do expect, obviously, Democratic gerrymandering, though, in this state, and we'll keep you updated otherwise. Um, So uh, have anything else before we uh, throw it off for the night? No, I'm good. All right. Uh, So, yeah, thank you guys for watching and listening. I really appreciate your support. Uh, You've really helped us continue to grow. So if you like the show and like what we do, uh, you can like and subscribe on YouTube, and you can also like and subscribe, I believe, on our Mm. podcast platforms uh, if you're listening to us on those. We really appreciate your support. On those platforms as well you can find us at elections-daily.com we have election news coming up regularly political news uh, coverage not just american politics but international politics we have a great uh, uk election uh, contributor corps who really know their stuff um, among uh, uh, and we're going to be getting you some updates on the U- uk if they have some of the uh some interesting stuff coming up lately as, as if you follow politics across the pond uh they have been uh boris johnson is making joe biden kind of look like uh ronald reagan in terms of popularity uh you know or fdr um so we'll have some stuff for you there with that as well yeah uh and you can follow us obviously on social media at elections underscore daily you can follow me on twitter at de cunningham too uh where do we follow you guys on twitter joe and dylan
1: uh Uh, you can you can follow me uh at joseph samansky you see it right there my little name uh at J O S E P H S Z Y M A N S K I, you'll mostly find me uh, putting out rapid political analysis on there, but you'll also see me uh, sometimes tweet about George Mason basketball, Washington Capitals hockey, and Pittsburgh Steelers football. Uh, to it get just a nice, well balanced amount of culture in there for y'all. If you-, <laughs> uh, you can find me at
2: Dylan B Wade One D Y L A N B w a d e and then the number one uh mostly politics but i try to mix in some movie takes in there because politics mm-hmm. is depressing and
0: yeah 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 and we've uh we i actually used to be on uh, dylan's podcast uh popcorn politics we talk about movies and we talk about a uh about politics so it's really fun yes. be sure to follow both of these guys they're really really smart they know their stuff but yeah, thank you guys for, uh, for watching and listening. Uh, we'll see you here next week. Same time, same place for Elections Weekly. Thank you.